immortal, invisible, God only wise. Scottish festival singers with immortal, invisible, God only wise. But now let's hear from David about our next piece. In his programme Poetry Please, Roger McGough talked to local poet Kenneth Stephen about growing up in Highland Perthshire and the influences on his poetry writing. Now you've long been inspired by the Highlands where you grew up, the wildlife, the landscape. I suppose you can't not be living in such a beautiful place. But what and when was your entry into poetry? Well, I suppose, thinking back, I spent my primary days looking at a lot of Victorian poetry, and I feel that I woke up to it in a real way when I went into secondary secondary and was introduced to two monoliths, Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney. I felt almost literally as if my face was was rubbed in in the mud. And I realised I had a landscape. I had a landscape to write about. You've often referred to the wildscape. Now, what is that? Is there a certain... Well, is it a wild kind of landscape that you you love particularly? I just think it's a... I suppose it's... For me, I can interpret that as, as the highlands, really. The highlands and islands, which are what I've written about 
first and foremost, wild places and the relationship between people and those wild places. Mm. Now, another wild place, and I know it's been, you've been influenced by, is, is Scandinavia. Yeah. Um, which I know has yeah. strong connections with Scotland and, and the language even. But um, tell us about how you came to admire the culture and landscape. And are there poets, yeah. Scandinavian yeah. poets, you particularly like to read? Very much so, yes. I, I was privileged enough to go there at the age of 17, which was great because it was a total immersion in the Norwegian language. I was in the west of, of Norway, about three fjords north of Bergen. And I was hearing Norwegian day and night around me for a year, and I had no option but to learn, and uh, learn I did. So I'm partly a, partly a translator as well from the language and yes I very much um, love 20th century Norwegian poets in particular Now you've been going through the requests that we sent you yeah. um, so what's your first choice going to be Ken? My first choice, Wendell Berry and The Peace of Wild Things which is a poem that I have known for, for a good while I think perhaps at, at this time the, the time we're in it felt it came home to me as an enormously reassuring poem. It's not telling us that everything's all right and that there's no need for concern about the natural world. It's, for me, reminding us instead that beauty's still alive and that it's still there um, and that no matter how, how bleak we get uh, about, you know, all that is being lost and is being lost, that it's still there. Let's hear the Peace of Wild Things, which has been requested by Tom Porter, who calls it A Cure for Many Ills. And it's read for us by Wendell Berry himself from the Radio 3 archive. When despair for the world grows in me And I wake in the night at the least sound In fear of what my life and my children's lives may be I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free the Piece of Wild Things, written and read by Wendell Berry. Kenneth, do you find poetry a cure for many ills? Yes, I do. I do. I was introduced to a child's garden of verses that was given to me when I was probably three or four. Given to me, and it was obviously read to me, and that wonderful anthology, wonderful collection by Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the power of it and the, the comfort of it, I think. It was like being given a candle, and... Uh, that candle has remained ever since. So I think going back to the Wendell Berry, uh, the piece of wild things, the comfort, the comfort that is to be found, the hiding place of poetry. Mm. Yeah, nicely put. Well, how about reading one of your own poems for us and tell us what you're going to read and how you came to write it. This is The Birth of the Fool, which comes from my selected poems, Island. My eyes still fought with sleep, out over the fields, mist lay in grey folds. From vague somewheres, curlews rose up with thin trails of crying. 
Our lanterns rocked in soft globes of yellow. Our feet slushed through the early morning thickness of the grass. She lay on her side, exhausted by her long night, the hot smell of flanks and head and breath ghosted from her spread length. Sunlight cracked from the broken yoke of the skies, ruptured the hills, spangled our eyes and blinded us, flooded the pale glows of our lanterns. There he lay in a pool of his own wetness, four long spindles scrabbling, the bigness of his head, a bag of a body, all struggling to find one another, to join up, to glue, into the single flow of a birthright. He fought for the first air of his life, noised like a child. His mother, still raw and torn from the scar of his birth, turned and her eyes held him. The great harsh softness of her tongue stilled his struggle. We knelt in the wet grass, dumbed by a miracle, by something bigger than the sun. Mm. Uh, you have a lovely poetry voice, Kenneth. Uh, it's lovely to hear your poem. That was The Birth of the Foal, and it's from your collection, Wild Horses, and also from your volume of selected poems, Island. And that was Kenneth Stephen being interviewed by Roger McGough. And now from an album of hymns from the Church Henry Fourth Edition, or CH4 as it's often known, here's the choir of Dunblane Cathedral with Great God of Every Shining Constellation.
We're starting a series on John Wesley and Methodism. Melvin Bragg talked to three experts on the history of Methodism. Erin White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson. Today they look at how Methodism started. As a student, John Wesley, 1703 to 1791, was mocked for approaching religion too methodically, a jibe that gave a name to the movement he was to lead and inspire, Methodism. He took his ideas out across Britain, wherever there was an appetite for Christian revival, preaching in the open air, especially in the new industrial areas. Others spread Methodism too, such as George Whitfield, and the sheer energy of the movement led to splits within it, but it soon became a major force for change. With me to discuss John Wesley and Methodism are Stephen Plant, Dean and Runcie Fellow at Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge, Erin White, reader in early modern history at Aberystwyth University, and William Gibson, Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Oxford Brookes University and Director of the Oxford Centre for Methodism and Church History. William Gibson, can you tell us about his early life, John Wesley? Well, John Wesley's upbringing was pretty um, unconventional because he was brought up in a tense and pretty insecure environment. Um, This is partly because of his parents' turbulent marriage. Uh, Samuel and Susanna Wesley fell out about politics in 1701 and they'd separated um, and lived apart for about eight months. But eventually they were reconciled and, in fact, Susanna went on to have five further pregnancies. But their relationship was pretty strained. Um, Just a second. What, what, diff- was the, what, was the, what, was the, what was the argument about politics? Uh, they fell out because Susanna had um, become a Jacobite. She rejected the revolution of 1688 and didn't believe that James II had stopped being king. Uh, whereas Samuel Wesley had accepted the revolution and regarded William III as the lawful king. How did it become so acute for for them to separate? Well, it it was a matter of their salvation. Um, They believed that, well, in Samuel's case, believed that he'd taken an oath to William III and therefore he was imperiling his salvation if he didn't hold uh, firm to that. Susanna took the opposite view and felt that uh, because she had accepted James II as her king. She would imperil her salvation if she uh, changed a, a king midstream, so to speak. They seem to have lived very frugally. We, we always had bread, but we never knew whether there was going to be on a table, something like that. Yes. Uh, this is partly because um, Samuel's parishioners and he were at loggerheads for much of the time, and as a result, they withheld their tithes from him. Um, and they also took direct action against him. They uh, burnt his crops, they maimed cattle... Um, and the result was that Samuel Wesley got terribly badly in debt. Um, oh dear, I shouldn't laugh. In fact, he was a terrible manager of his money, and by today's values, he was something like £40,000 in debt by 1705. Um, and he was imprisoned for three months in Lincoln Jail as a result. Uh, But another element of the upbringing was that the family believed that they were surrounded by the supernatural. Uh, Samuel thought that witches were active locally in Lincolnshire, um, and certainly on occasion he preached against witchcraft to his parishioners. Um, And in 1716, the rectory was haunted by a ghost or poltergeist. Um, The family nicknamed the ghost Old Geoffrey, and Old Geoffrey rapped on headboards of beds, Uh, he rattled doors, he knocked chairs and tables, Uh, he caused clattering sounds all over the house, and there were curious apparitions of animals. 
that old Geoffrey clearly agreed with Susanna's politics because he seemed to accept the Jacobite position because he objected to George I being prayed for. What experiences can you identify in that turmoil of a childhood that helped to shape him? I certainly think uh, marital difficulty was one of the things that we shall see uh, later on. He uh, seems to have had difficulty forming relations with women and certainly sustaining a marriage. He also, I think, was fairly wary of parish ministry, perhaps as a result of his father's um, rather difficult experiences. And uh, uh, he spent three years as curate to his father. And that was the last time he really took part in parish ministry. He returned to Oxford uh, as a tutorial fellow and then after that itinerated as a preacher. Thank you very much. Um, Stephen Plant, uh, as has been mentioned, he won a scholarship to Oxford. He was a brilliant man, we're told. What sort of scholar was he and what did the Holy Club do? Wesley went to Oxford in 1720 from Charterhouse and seems initially to have lived a fairly ordinary uh, undergraduate life, enjoyed himself quite a lot. And then in preparation for his ordination to the diaconate in the Church of England, he seems to have become a little bit more serious and following ordination uh, and that period of two years as a curate, uh, two and a bit years with his father in, in Lincolnshire. He returned to Oxford in 1729, and it was at that point that his younger brother, about four years younger, Charles Wesley, uh, welcomed him into a very small group of friends, perhaps no more than three at the time, which met really as a kind of reading or study group. It's, it's glorifying it a little bit in retrospect to call it a holy club. Sorry to interrupt, but it was called the Holy Club. By whom and why? Well, by other undergraduates. The group evolved through time, but their activities were not all that strange. They decided to take communion once a week instead of the usual once a term, which is what was required of them as members of the college. They uh, read together, usually the classics in the week, and then on Sundays something a bit more religious... And then uh, within a year or so, they also began undertaking charitable acts. They set up a bit of a school, they raised funds for the poor, they started prison visiting, and they began fasting a couple of times a week according to the pattern of the ancient or classic uh, ancient church. But Wesley was the one whose personality loomed largest, and he was often the one to whom they looked for a lead. And more about the history of the Methodists next week. Methodists are renowned for their lively hymns. Here's one. It's written by Charles Wesley and sung here by the St Michael singers. We have, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise.
last Monday was St David's Day and one of his sayings was do the little things, little acts of kindness, very appropriate for just now. Here's John Michael Talbot with something from St Teresa of Avila. In in a similar theme, it's known as St Teresa's Prayer. has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Children of the Night Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. I suspect that throughout history, a surprisingly large section of the Christian church has only visited Jesus by night. In the heart-sick early hours, or at times when the world has receded like a tide, they tiptoe warily into his presence, bringing with them the same burning acknowledgement of who he is, and the same searching questions as Nicodemus brought 2,000 years ago. This army of secret admirers 
probably included every class, race and type of person that ever existed, but I'd like just for a moment to think about the young people of this age and the difficulties they face in publicly relating to Jesus. We adults don't help, I'm afraid. I, I know there have been times when I would have cheerfully exchanged all ideals of reality and integrity for the comfortable knowledge that my children were uncomplicated, incurious, card-carrying members of a chorus-singing, sausage-sizzling, sex-avoiding, Bible-studying, evangelical church youth group. There's nothing wrong with all those things, of course. Some of them are very right. But my concern was not actually for their relationship with Jesus. I just wanted them out of harm's way so that I could find peace of mind. You can't always have your parental cake and eat it. Many parents bring their children up to believe that it's all right to question and test and be who they are. Their children might not, therefore, be the kind of kids who will ever be safely slotted into the sort of formal situation that I caricatured just then. Many unchurched children will be visiting Jesus by night, and he has to be trusted to deal with them. I think some of us would be astonished to learn how much is happening in the hearts and minds of the non-attending young people who cause us so much concern. I'm not anti-church group, but my heart aches for the vast numbers of young people from both Christian and non-Christian families who just can't fit into such a situation and go on being who they are. Christianity is not defined by the morning or the evening services, by a way of speaking or dressing or doing religious things or aiming for vaguely middle-class norms, by membership of the school Christian union or even by witnessing to classmates, however admirable and right all these may be. And Christianity is not about teenagers making their parents feel safe. Christianity is about an encounter with God, about turning from the negative past to be embraced by the warm and excited forgiveness of the Father. It's about discovering that it is possible to start again, to be born again. It's about understanding a little of the sacrifice that Jesus made in dying on the cross. It's about friendship with him. And sometimes all this has to begin secretly, in the night. Meanwhile, we'll keep praying Pray with me. We cry out to you for our young people, Father. When they come to you by night, may they learn how much you love them. Awesome. And I think it's not just younger people who come to Jesus by night. That was Adrian Plass. Music now, and this one has a two-word title. It's I'm Accepted. I'm Accepted.
written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm number 7. It's followed by Handel's Water Music, played by the English Concert, and that's under their conductor, Trevor Pinnock. Domine Deus Meus, a response to Psalm 7. Until I recognise his face at last... I'll trust him in the dark and carry on till these destructive powers fall back to dust till the devouring lions are fled and gone before the great lion in his righteousness. Then every place where some small gleam has shown will shine within the light of holiness and he will prove and make me true of heart. My Lord and God, Dominus, Deus, Meus, evil can only break itself apart, recoiling back into its own destruction and digging its own grave. It has no part in the true kingdom. All its desolation will fall away to nothing and be gone before the splendour of the resurrection. Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he's Peter, the fisherman. Well, I may not be a genius or a spiritual beacon, but one thing I know how to do, and that's how to fish. Or so I thought. Been doing it all my life. I know the whole process. Where to find them, when's the best time to launch the boats, when it's no use, time to go back to shore... I know how to stock them, how to salt them, how to sell them. That's my job. I hope I don't sound like a know-it-all, because I'm not. It's just that I'm a fisherman. And like my father and his father before me, I know how to do it. My name's Peter, and I fish in the lake of Genesaret, close to a town called Capernaum. 
I'm going to tell you of an incredible story of someone who's a better fisherman than me, but one that's never even put his net in the water to catch fish. What's that? You don't believe me? Well, listen to this. It happened one early to mid-morning as we were moored and washing our nets. It was a frustrating night for us. We mostly fish at night. That's the best time. Then every time we threw the nets in the water and dragged them back into the boat, they were empty. Every time. Never saw anything like it. It was as if the fish always predicted where we were going to throw the nets, talked it over amongst themselves, and swam away. As we were on the shore and washing our nets, I tell you, I was angry. You say I shouldn't have been? You try working yourself to the bone all night and getting what? Nothing. No, less than nothing, because you still have to wash and store the nets afterwards, and they're heavy and wet. Okay, well, not too far from us, there was this rabbi named Jesus who was teaching us the word of God, and a lot of people were sitting on the sand. Suddenly, he comes up to me and tells me he needs to get in my boat and put off a ways from the shore. Well, I was a bit gruff with him because, frankly, I was kind of in no mood. But I could see his problem. Well, the people were pressing him. And if he was on the water, the sound would carry a bit further. Okay. Anyway, I did as he said as he continued teaching. No one left the shore, though. And I confess, I've never heard anyone teach as Jesus did. <laughs> Not like our rabbis. When he finished teaching, he looks at me and says, Put out into the deep water and let your nets out for a catch. To say I was irritated just doesn't do it. This rabbi might know how to preach, but I know how to fish. And one, it was the wrong time of day to catch fish. And two, my men and I were past tired men. We were shattered. I replied, Master, we worked hard all night. We caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. I don't know why I agreed to do that, but, but I did. What happened next was mayhem. Suddenly, the nets were so full of fish that the nets began to break, so we were hauling them back into the boat with all our strength. I shouted out to the boat that was near us, Hey, hey, come, help us. Get, get over here and help us. And we began to pull the nets into both of the boats, so both the boats began to sink. I've never seen anything like this. Well, it was with great difficulty that we got the two boats back to shore. The amount of fish we caught was more than I'd ever seen. When we got back to shore, Jesus' eyes met mine for a long moment. That was when I remembered my doings the night before, when we'd worked so hard and caught nothing. I was shaking my fist at God and asking him why I was working so hard to catch fish, to support my wife and family, and coming up empty-handed. I was crying out things like, if you cared, you wouldn't let this happen. Why would you do this to a struggling fisherman? When Jesus looked at me, though, I knew he knew what was in my heart, and it wasn't good. My anger at coming home empty-handed led me to be disrespectful to my Creator, and Jesus knew it. It was as if the very soul was bared before this man. And that was when I realized that this wasn't just a man. He was our Savior. I could hide from others but I couldn't hide from Jesus. I said to him, go away from me, Lord. I'm just a sinful man. I was so amazed. And so were the others with me because of this huge load of fish he'd brought us to. Never forget what he said next. Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. 
Well, at that very moment, I left the boats, left the town, left my former life, and I started following Jesus. And here's a song about Jesus calling his disciples. It's translated from a song written by a Spanish priest. In Spanish, it's called Fishers of Men. That's an English translation. It's sung here by Tim Lewis, where it is, Lord, you have come to the seashore.
sings Mercy Everlasting. Spirit dances like 